93. That's found on page 498 in the Bibles that are provided for you in the rows. Psalm 93, beginning at verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for the psalms. Lord, we thank you for this psalm, a psalm that reminds us that you are the sovereign king of the universe. You are Lord over all that has been made, and everyone else is a pretender to the throne. Lord, as we consider the the truths revealed about you in these five verses, Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds would see you in your glory. Lord, that we would be in awe of who you are. And that our lives would be an appropriate response to you in your majesty. Lord, we we cannot and we will not do this on our own. We need your Spirit's help. So, Lord, in in spite of of whatever circumstances we we may be facing, Lord, individually and even as a body, no no matter what we may be hearing about on the news or, or seeing happening in this world, Help us to, first and foremost, see you in your glory, to to trust you, to to depend upon you, to, to worship you in every season of life. Lord, grant this to your people for our good and for your glory, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. The news this past week focused primarily on on the tragic events that took place in Parkland, Florida, which honestly the the school shooting serves as a reminder of uh, of the tumultuous fallen world that we live in. It is heartbreaking to, to hear such stories. 
We've all seen the news, and, and those that are on social media have, have, have heard the, the calls for action in dealing with, with everything from guns to mental illness. And as believers, our, our shock and horror at such acts of violence and our desire to see future tragedies avoided tempts us to, to want to jump on the bandwagon of, of whatever call to action best fits our personal views on the issues of today. And such action may not necessarily be bad, but, but I think as Christians, a, a word of reminder is needed as it relates to us in the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, there has never been a legislative action by any government in the world that deals with the root of all of our problems, which is sin. Ignoring the, the problem of sin leads to the staggering inconsistencies we, we see in the world's response to such tragedies. Evil exists in this world. Evil exists in our own hearts. And as we follow the world's example and looking to, to blame everything but sin, then we really forfeit the opportunity to introduce the true remedy into the situation. And that's the work of the Lord Jesus in his perfect life, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead to save us from our sins. And while the world that we live in at times seems out of control, thankfully the Bible paints a much different picture as it relates to God's rule over all He has made. This morning we consider Psalm 93. I know that it is providential that we find ourselves here in light of all that has taken place over the past week. This morning, we, we consider thought Psalm 93. This is the, the first in a group of eight psalms which celebrate God's kingly rule over all he has made. It would fall under the enthronement psalms, as I was giving you the list of, uh, of the seven different types that, that we find. Enthronement. It, it paints the picture of God in his glorious role of king over all he has made. It's a, Psalm 93 is a, is a timely reminder, even in the face of turmoil, that the God who was king over Israel, the God of Israel, is also the king over all creation. We, we, we find Psalm 93 divided into three sections. First, we're introduced to the Lord's glorious rule. We, we come face to face with God's testimony of himself as ruler of all. Secondly, we look at the Lord's absolute rule. In spite of the circumstances that we may face and the things that we see going on in the world, God's power is still greater. 
than the powers at work in this world. And finally, we'll, we'll consider the Lord's purifying rule. How God's word and his statutes for his people make us holy as we submit ourselves to them. Now, as I use the word rule in our three points this morning, I, I hope it's obvious to you that I'm speaking of God's reign rather than particularly a rule or a law that he's given. Although his laws fall under his reign, that, that word rule, I'm, I'm talking about his rule as king. It's his reign over all that he has made. And may our eyes be open to see our glorious king this morning. Let, let, let's consider the, the Lord's glorious rule in verses 1 and 2. The psalmist write, writes, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The psalmist begins by, by describing God's attributes as if they're clothing. Now, if you've ever studied or, or read about monarchs, you, you know that, that most of them dress very royally. They, they wear a crown, a flowing robe, and belts, and, and, and everything that, that they wear is designed to reflect a majesty that is related to their position as king. That makes sense, right? Watch the old medieval shows. You, you see the, the, the peasants that are all dressed very plainly, but when you see the monarchs, they are dressed very royally. They, they want to, to look the part of their position, but if you think about it, deep down, they're really no different than the people over whom they rule, right? If we have a, a biblical understanding of mankind, then we understand that, the, that the, the greatest person in the eyes of the world and the person that we would say is least in the eyes of the world are, are the same in the eyes of God and, and are both in need of salvation. If you strip away all the, all the external ornaments, we're all the same. But this is not true of God. The, the, the psalmist doesn't describe robes in terms of, of actual clothing. He doesn't say that the Lord wears a, 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 a purple robe with, 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 with animal fur around it like some type of king because... There, there's something greater than it adorns the Lord, and that is his character. His character is his adornment. His attributes reveal his greatness, his stateliness. The, the Lord reigns. The, the psalmist begins with a statement of fact that he then builds upon with the phrases that follow. And again, the Lord reigns is a reference to God's kingly rule over all that he has made. There's nothing in all the universe, that, or any of the universes for that matter, that exists that is not outside of God's sovereign reign. Let that sink in, brothers and sisters. 
The, the, the creation story isn't something that's just thrown in there so we have a, a, a way to understand why we exist. The, the fact that God spoke and, and things came into existence is a clear testimony of, of the power of God. And it's not that God just spoke and then just let things go. But everything, everything that exists, things that we see, things that we are totally unaware of, things that human eyes will never see in our lifetime, even with the most powerful telescopes and the, and the most far-flung galaxies that exist. There is not a speck of space dust billions of light years away that are outside of the reign and rule of our God. Let that sink in. That, that's mind-boggling, is it not? It's amazing to think of God's reign just over the things that go on on this one planet that we live on. But there is nothing outside of His reign. Everything is subject to Him. Nothing escapes His notice. He is the ruler of all, and His reign is marked by His character. And, and the, the first quality of, of, of God's character that, that the psalmist focuses on is God's majesty. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. Now, I mentioned before about earthly kings and queens often dress the part. The, the robe would be the most visible piece of clothing they wear. Now, we would think that the, the crown might be the most glorious, but, but when you walk in, what would be the first thing that you notice from a distance? It would be the robe. It would set them apart from, from everyone else around them. The, the robe gives the impression of, of, of power and majesty. And for human rulers, they were made, by, made out of the finest materials and furs. But majesty emphasizes dignity and authority. God, God doesn't need a robe made by human hands because his character itself is majestic. He is all-powerful. His Rule is sovereign. He is perfect in all of his judgments. And he is true to his word. Majesty is the overarching theme of all the visions of God in the Old and New Testament. Isaiah chapter 6 is probably the one that we are most familiar with from the Old Testament. Listen to verses Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook 
at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, we cannot downplay Isaiah's reaction to coming face to face with a vision of God in his glory. He is so overcome by the majesty of God that, that he became acutely aware of his own sinfulness before this holy God. He, he came before God who is so glorious that the entire temple was filled with his glory and majesty. Everything around God that you see in this vision existed for the sole purpose of worshiping God. The, the seraphim who, who, who flew and proclaimed the glory of God, who, who could not even look on his glory, they had to cover their eyes. And who were so humble before him that they had to cover their feet could do nothing but sing of the holiness and the greatness of God. You, 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 you don't truly come into the presence of God without being shaken to your core. Even as we come for worship, we, we often think about the, the great feelings that it evokes within us, and, and that certainly can be a, an appropriate response to worshiping God. But the goal is to, is to see God as we do that. That's why we examine the words and, and want to make sure that they're true to what God has said about himself in Scripture. And so as we're singing these truths, yes, we are filled with a sense of, of worship in the sense of, yes, we're, we're happy to be here and we're thrilled to sing about how great God is. But there should also be this sense of awe a holy reverence that's stimulated within us because we are singing about a God whom heavenly beings are humbled by. Isaiah saw everything about God in this vision and he was undone. Before God, he, he pronounces a woe upon himself. Cursed am I, because I am in the presence of this God, and I am a sinner. I got a dirty mouth. James Montgomery Boyce, who was the, the, the pastor of, of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, He's gone to be with the Lord now, but he, he writes that, that, that God's majesty is the attribute that links his holiness and his sovereignty. God is utterly different from us in that he is without flaw or deficiency, and many other ways too. Yet, he still benevolently and graciously rules over all that he has made. God is so other than us and so 
utterly self-sufficient. He has no need for us. That he could literally do whatever he wants with, 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 with however he works outside of creation and space and time. He could be focused on those things and would be completely righteous to do so. Yet he chooses to continue to reign and to intercede and to be involved and, 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 and overseeing the, the events that take place on this sin-stained world. God chooses that. How can we not be humbled by that reality? He would be righteous to, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, to, to, to have scrapped it all and start over again. Or to say, you know what? That's how humanity's going to be. I'm going to take my hands off, let it go. Bite, devour, kill one another, go to hell. It's what you deserve. But in his infinite mercy and love, he does the exact opposite. He sets in place this, this plan of redemption that, that, that unfolds through the course of, of what we read in Scripture to the point where it is, culminates in, in the sacrifice and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. All to testify, you know what? None of these things were outside of my control. None of these things were outside of my knowledge. Come to me in light of this great act of love performed by my son. How can we not be in awe, brothers and sisters? How can we not be in awe of his majesty? God's rule is also characterized by his strength. The psalmist writes, The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Now, if you're using the, the NIV or the New American Standard uh, translations of the Old Testament, verse 1 may look a little different in your Bible. I want to I read those because I, I think these two versions do something the ESV doesn't do as well. This is the NIV. It says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. Did you hear that repeating of this idea of being robed in majesty? You don't see that in the ESV. New American Standard says, The, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Now, maybe you're asking, why on earth is he taking time to, to share this verse from two other translations? Well, I share them with you for one reason. And that's because they both really do a better job at expressing what the, the psalmist is doing here. It's called a parallelism. 
And what you see in, in many times in Hebrew poetry is, is, is what's called a parallelism, where, where, where the writer will, will take an idea in, in one line, and then in the next line he will repeat that idea and oftentimes build upon it. The NIV is especially clear on that. The Lord, is, the Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty. And clothed in strength. There's that, that picture. It, it's building there. The, 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 the strength of the ESV is also its weakness in this case. The, 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 the ESV tries to make a very literal translation from the original language to English in every case. And that works great in most situations, but Hebrew is, especially in poetry, can, can be challenging. And, and it's good for us to dig in and, and recognize what the psalmist is doing. It's not just poetry for the sake of, oh, this sounds nice and it rolls off the tongue. But the psalmist is teaching us something about the character of God. And he wants us to see that this majesty reveals itself in God's strength as well. He's clothed with majesty. He's, he, he, he's girded himself with strength. The, the, these lines build off one another. And they take us deeper in understanding God's majesty by, by revealing that God's strength is majestic as well. The, the Hebrew word translated strength, it, it paints the picture of a, of a building or a city that's well fortified. It's got thick walls, and, and on these walls it has ramparts that, that the archers would stand from to be able to fire and, and repel those that might seek to invade. It also describes someone who cannot be moved. They're, they're so powerful or, or so stubborn that they, they won't move. And the belt of strength that the, 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 the psalmist is, speaks of figuratively is a reminder that there is no one, no thing, no circumstance or event that's more powerful than God. He, he cannot be overpowered or subdued. His strength is revealed in his sovereignty. His plans always come to pass. And he cannot be stopped by the schemes of man or the powers of darkness. Brothers and sisters, this must lead lead us to a, a greater confidence in God and a greater commitment to the things of God. We, we, we must begin to, to view the circumstances and events that take place in this life through the lens of God's Word because when we look at them from any other perspective, any other perspective, we always go off course. We, we, we need the foundation and the direction of God's Word for us to make sense of the, the ugliness and difficulties that we see in this life. If we lose sight of God's strength and His sovereignty, then we are in danger of despair when we come face to face with the fallenness of this world. Think about the news that we heard this week. Who among us was not heartbroken by what we heard and learned? We all were. We may not be surprised that these things happen, but that doesn't mean they don't rip our hearts out. Try to make sense of that 
without some sense of, of the understanding of the fallenness of man, of, of, of the depravity that we see in Scripture. We, we can't. These things happen because of the world that we live in. It's, it's fallen. It's dominated by sin. It is in need of redemption. And, and if we lose sight and just think that, that it's going to change by a, electing a different person or an, enacting another type of legislation or anything like that, that that's going to be the, 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 the magic pill that solves it all, then that shows that we've totally taken our eyes off the truth. Now again, we, we do what we can do in this life, and there are a lot of different theories about how to do it, but the reality is is that until we begin as a society to, to view life and understand life through the lens of what God says about it rather than what man says, then there's always going to be that disconnect when, when wickedness reveals itself in this world. That makes sense, right? I, I shouldn't have to convince you of that. This is preaching to the choir, I hope. You want to talk about the disconnect that shows that culturally we are not seeing things as God says so. Just look at the response to this, this tragedy, this school shooting where 17 people lost their lives. Yet the same people that are upset about this are perfectly fine with thousands of children being killed daily in the womb. This is not to be political, but let's be real here. Anyone who is honest with themselves, who has ever seen an ultrasound, knows that that's a person. And the only way you can be okay with death there, but not when that person's been out of the womb for 17 years, is to be deceived. We, 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 we can't navigate these things without the lens of God's Word. We, we want to, to value all life. We want to see all people hear the gospel. We want to see all people come to, to faith in Christ. The circumstances around this young man's actions who did these things, you know, could they have been avoided if, if someone had been investing in his life with the gospel? Possibly. Even if there's illness involved there. Teaching people to, to, to value life as God does changes how we respond to the hard things in life. The world is the way the world is because the world has no biblical view of God. As the church, we better have a biblical view of God. If not, we will despair. 
The, the third characteristic of God's character that we see here in, in verses 1 and 2 is, is what theologians call God's immutability. Now that's a, a fancy word that simply means that God does not change. The created world is marked by change. The, the world changes, the weather changes, people change. Even stars in the sky burn out, but God never changes. And this is a beautiful reality. Let, let's look at the end of verse 1 and all of verse 2. It says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting the, the psalmist begins with the statement that the world is established, it shall never be moved. And, and perhaps you're wondering what this has to do with God's unchanging character. And I'm, I'm so glad that you asked. Last week as we were uh, considering Psalm 121, we saw the, the, the psalmist begin with creation and, and, and begin to work his way back to how small he is in view of God. Remember that? And, and I believe the psalmist here is doing something similar. The, the, the point isn't the fact that the world itself shall not be moved because it's been established, but that the great, big, um, unmovable world is the way it is because God made it that way. It's a, it's a statement about God's character. You, you've made this world that, that, that it will not be destroyed outside of your hand. So what does that say about God? What, what, what does the great, big, unmovable world say about the one who made it? Verse 2 says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Now, why could the psalmist say that the world is established and will never be moved? It's because God is the one who established it, and God is the one who rules it completely. God's throne is a reference to his rule or reign. His reign is eternal, and that's what everlasting means. God has always been God, He will always be God, and He will always be perfect in all that He does. He, he does not change. No one but God can destroy the world that He created, contrary to what you may hear elsewhere. And honestly, it's pretty arrogant to think that we could. Now again, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be good stewards of what we've been given. In fact, as believers, we should be great caretakers of what we've been given because we understand that it was given by God. But we don't do it because agendas guilt us to, to live a certain way or to drive a certain car. But our decisions have to be shaped by our understanding of how we best honor God in our time here. We love people more than the planet because we understand that people are the ones in need of redemption. God, God's unchanging character is reflected in his unchanging rule over all that he's made. He, he does not change his definitions or his expectations. He is not fickle nor given to insecurity. He, he always does what is best and will, what, what will ultimately reveal his glory most clearly at the return of Christ. God doesn't change, brothers and sisters. And that's why we can trust his word as well. His word 
does not change. It says what it means, and it means what it says, and the meanings do not change. And, and it's the result of, of people who hate his word that, that, that leads to, to, to seeking to redefine the terms. And the fact that God is unchanging is yet another reason for us to delight ourselves in him and to devote ourselves to worshiping him with our lives. In verses 3 and 4, the, the psalmist reminds us that God's rule is absolute, even in circumstances that may seem uncertain from a human perspective. Let's look at the Lord's absolute rule. It says, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Now, that, this reference to, to floods in verse, verse, verses 3 and 4 have, has ultimately been understood primarily in two ways. The, the, the one view is, is that the psalmist is writing of literal floods, the waters actually rising. Those things do happen. They, they happened back then. They happen now. The, the second view is, is a little different. It's saying that the use of floods and, and roaring waters are a, a figurative way to describe the, the, the pagan nations that surrounded Israel. The floods and the roarings were, were, the, were the armies and the nations around them. And this imagery is actually used elsewhere in the Old Testament for that purpose. Listen to Isaiah chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. It says, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of the nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he, God, will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and the whirling dust before the storm. Does this also in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 50, verse 42. It says, They lay hold of the bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. The, the sound of them is like the roaring of the sea. They ride on horses, arrayed as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. Now, whether the psalmist is, is speaking of literal floods or figuratively of, of those nations that surround, the, the, the point of these verses is the same. As powerful and as threatening as the, the, the things that we face in this life can be, God is even more powerful. Verse 3, the, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The, the floods have lifted up their voice. The, the floods lift up their roaring. The, the waters are rushing in. Floods are, are powerful and destructive. The, the sound of, of rushing water can be loud and overwhelming. Being caught up in a flood is terrifying. Being surrounded by enemies invokes similar feelings and responses, but verse 4 points to a greater reality. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The psalmist doesn't deny the, the might that he sees, either in the, in the rising floods or, or the nations that surround. It's, it's not a denial that, that that's power. There's a confidence that there is one 
who is greater, who is mightier. Oh, brothers and sisters, is this not great food for our souls as we seek to live faithfully in this world? This what seems to be uncertain world from our perspective? As, as frightening as temporary circumstances can be, as, as powerful as the flood or the enemy or, or, or whatever it is we may be facing, God is always mightier. Plain and simple, the, the Lord's authority is greater than any of the powers we encounter on this earth. He is sovereign over the hardships just as he is sovereign over victories. I cannot think of a, of a more appropriate reminder this morning, dear church family. We face trials. We are surrounded by hurting people. We ourselves are hurt at times. This world is filled with terror and tragedy, but God calls us to take comfort in His unchanging, eternal, all-powerful, authoritative rule even over this fallen world. This is the God that the lost needs to come to know. They, they need to know of their sin that separates them from Him. And they need to know the great act of love His Son displayed in giving His life to reconcile us to Himself. In times of sadness, they need the comfort that only the Spirit of God can give. They and we need the reminder that there is no sin committed that will go unpunished, either through the sacrifice of Jesus or when God's justice is poured out on those who will not believe. His absolute rule is not shaken just because we don't understand why things happen the way they do. That's a reminder that we are finite, but He is infinite. Brothers and sisters, we, we would do well to remember that, that, that we all deserve to perish apart from God's saving work in our lives. The ultimate tragedy is not death, dear ones. The ultimate tragedy is to die outside of Christ. Finally, let's consider the Lord's purifying rule, verse 5. The psalmist writes, Your decrees are tr very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Now the flow of this psalm is simple. We, we start with, with the glorious character of God, the, the glorious ruler over all creation. Then we are reminded that God's rule extends even over the tumultuous aspects of this world. The, the, the power we see displayed in difficulty seems great. God's power is much greater. And then verse 5 ends by, by focusing on the effect of God's rule over his people. Remember, brothers and sisters, God's reign is an extension of his character. God is majestic, strong, eternal, unchanging. Lord, in Psalm 93, is like, like the psalms we looked at earlier we studied, comes from the Hebrew Yahweh, which emphasizes God's eternal, sovereign, promise-keeping nature. Based on God's character, it only makes sense that His Word is trustworthy and true as well. 
Your decrees are trustworthy, the, the psalmist writes in verse 5. De decrees is a comprehensive word. It's, it's used to describe the whole of God's word. It, it, it means witness, testimony. It can be translated laws and, and legal provisions. What, what God has said about himself is true and trustworthy. He instructs us from a position of complete knowledge and total wisdom. Now, one of the, the strengths of this church is that we have several educators among us. Each one has gone through much training and instruction in order to teach others. Each one of them, along with the parents among us, can, can speak to the challenge of trying to teach someone something when, when the student thinks they already know it already. In, in some instances, this may actually be the case. Maybe they do know more than we do about something. But this is never the case with God. When God teaches his people, it is always from the position of, of him knowing way more than we ever could. And when we realize that, that's a great place to be. Think about that in terms of how God sovereignly uses trials in our lives. Now, we don't know why they come. We're always tempted to think that there's some kind of punishment, but that we don't know that, but that's how our minds work. Why do we struggle in this way, or why did that happen, or, 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 or why is this temptation the one I'm always battling with? And it causes us often to be tempted to question God's goodness. When in fact, the things that are happening to us are an extension of God's wisdom designed to bring about growth. He is bringing the things into our lives that we need to be wrestling with to, to further conform us to the image of Christ. Let that sink in next time you're tempted to complain about your circumstances. For me, it'll be in probably about 20 minutes or so. God never teaches us either through the, the circumstances that we face, but definitely and, and clearly through his word, from a position of ignorance. The God who gave us his word is a God who lacks no wisdom. There is nothing he does not know because he created knowledge. This is why we must go humbly to his word. Not, not seeking to, to bolster our own opinions or positions, but, but to learn of God and all that he calls us to. Understanding that even the hard truths of the Bible are for our good because God is good. As we read and study God's word, we, we must make it our priority to never separate the word of God from the God who gave his word. As we read about laws, the, the, the temptation is to, to simply view them as a list of do's and don'ts, right? Don't commit adultery. Is a, it, it's pretty clear to all of us why that's a good law to follow. But do we stop to, to think about what that says about the God who gave it? Probably not often enough. When, when we separate God from his laws, then, then we become legalists. But as we read God's law and, and, and the rest of his word, for that matter, in light of who God is, 
It doesn't become legalism, but it becomes a, a, an avenue for us to express our worship of Him. I obey not to earn God's favor, but because I've received it. Remember Galatians? Hope so. It wasn't that long ago. We, we, we obey, we follow, because we recognize the one who calls us to do these things sees things from a much better perspective than we do. We, we recognize that obedience is an act of faith. It flows from what we already claim to believe. It's the evidence of our salvation, not the basis of it. The commands of Scripture reflect the character of a loving, all-wise God who saved us. It reveals that obedience is a way to honor Him and also reflect the character of our Savior. But if you've read the Bible, you know it's way more than just laws. It's a revelation of the majestic God that we see revealed here in Psalm 93. The psalmist says that God's word is trustworthy. The, the, the Hebrew word translated trustworthy emphasizes truth and permanence, unmoving. God's word, his, his rule, his reign in written for, for form purifies his people. It says, holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. God is holy, so everything associated with him must be holy as well. Holiness means that we are devoted to God. We've been set apart from, from the world through faith in Christ for the purposes of God. Our, our priorities begin to change to, to, to reflect God's priorities, who rules over us, the God who saves us. Several times in the book of Leviticus, God repeats the phrase, you shall be holy, for I am holy, as he gives the law, which was designed to set Israel apart from all other nations. In the New Testament, Peter picks up on the same theme as he calls the church to faithfulness in a hostile world. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14-21. through 21. Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were, ran you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So our, our, our obedience, our, our desire to honor God, our holiness is an act of faith. God is holy, brothers and sisters, and holiness is the appropriate response of his people. God's word purifies, brothers and sisters. It cleanses us, it confronts us, it comforts us. 
conforms us to the image of Christ. The, the, the Psalms of enthronement are glorious. Keep reading the next eight or seven. Psalm 93 moves our eyes from our circumstances to the God who reigns and saves us. God's rule is a, is a glorious rule. His rule is an absolute rule, and His rule is a purifying rule. The way for us to remain faithful during our time on this earth, dear ones, is to stay focused on this King of glory with the goal of, of honoring Him before the eyes of a lost world. Dear ones, will you let His Word about Himself refocus and, and redirect your life this morning? Will you? Lord, I thank you for these verses. Lord, we could spend weeks just in verses 1 and 2, encouraging one another and reflecting on your majesty, your strength, your unchanging nature, your eternal nature, reminding one another of uh, of how you are at work in our lives and, and celebrating your faithfulness and rejoicing in the truths that we learn about you from your word. Lord, may we never pass by verses that, 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 that focus on your greatness without stopping to, to, to reflect and to be in awe and even to, to pray asking you to expand our understanding of who you are. Lord, it is in seeing you as you are that our lives are transformed and our faith is established in you. Lord, would you do this work among your people, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.